Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people evolving business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you are listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast. On the show today, Lisen Schulz, a sustainability scientist and deputy director of the world-renowned Stockholm Resilience Center. So today we'll talk about resilience thinking. Lisen, a warm, warm welcome to my podcast. And uh, I'm really grateful that our paths have crossed. And it's actually thanks to our joint friend, uh, Rebecca Carlson. Yes, thanks, Vesna. And thanks, Rebecca, for bringing us together. You started off as uh, an ecologist and you still pursue a lot of research to understand how people can become stewards of landscapes and also seascapes around the world. So I'm curious, what made you take that path initially? Well, it was actually this realization when I was a teenager that uh, I was uh, a member of a species that uh, acted like a parasite on planet Earth. That maybe sounds uh, drastic, but uh, when I was a teenager, there was the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer. And we had the Chernobyl accident, this nuclear accident. And we also had in Sweden lots of seals that were dying uh, outside on the West Coast and no one really knew why. So I just felt with all of these signals that I wouldn't have a, a future, basically. And I, I figured, you know, I will never be able to have kids and, and things like that. And that was a terrible feeling to be part of a, of a species that felt like a parasite. And then when I thought a bit longer about that, I felt that, you know, that that would then mean that the planet would be better without people, which didn't resonate because I love people. I love uh, the things that people can create, like music and arts and uh, solidarity and uh, so many beautiful things that humans bring to the planet. So then I figured, you know, there must be another way for us to live with this planet and on this planet. And I wanted to pursue a career where I could be part of that shift from, you know, a parasite to a more symbiotic species. And then to do that, I thought the first thing is to learn ecology, to understand how nature works. Wow, that was deep thinking very early on. Yeah, I must have been an old soul somehow. But also, I think it's to do with the fact that I was the oldest of five siblings. So when I was 10, I already had four younger siblings. I think I felt a lot of responsibility as a child early on. And so maybe that was why, you know, I I also felt, you know, I I had to take responsibility for the planet. Now I've discovered that we're so many more people doing that together. So that it's really good that I'm definitely not alone. We all depend on each other and on all life on this planet. And I keep thinking, still, we keep producing results that no one wants. I mean, that is literally some kind of a definition of insanity, one would say. But how would you explain that? My um, perception of of humans is that we're not uh, evil. We're not necessarily always good either. But we are pursuing well-being and happiness and uh, security. And we're trying to meet our needs, basically, uh, for ourselves, but also for our families and, you know, maybe for the communities we're part of. And then as an aggregate effect, you know, we see this uh, transgression of planetary boundaries and we see loss of biodiversity and climate change and all of those things. But no one is actually trying to make that happen, but it's more an effect of the collective action that, that we have or the collective effect that we have. So I think part of it is that we don't see uh, what we're doing and we also don't see how we could do it differently. But how much of this climate change is actually man-made and how much is it part of maybe a natural evolution? So, um, of course, uh, the climate has shifted throughout the history of planet Earth. 
But about uh, 11,000 years ago, uh, we entered into uh, the Holocene, which is uh, a very stable epoch um, in the planet's history in terms of climate. Um, Actually, the average global temperature has only fluctuated about 0.5 degrees uh, up and down throughout this period. And this was part of the reason why we could create agriculture. Uh, And it happened, you know, across the globe at the same time. So, and we would have stayed in this interglacial period for probably another 10,000 years uh, if it weren't for the fact that we have now put so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that actually heats up the planet. Uh, So the change that we see is uh, entirely man-made. What nature has done through this time that we've started burning fossil fuels and so on is actually to absorb uh, more than half of our emissions. So the biosphere, you know, this living web around the planet has buffered and mitigated the climate change that we've caused uh, rather than accelerating it. So the changes we see today are the result of human-made warming. And this biosphere's uh, capacity to decrease the, the bad effects is decreasing drastically, or? Well, we see signs that we're approaching some tipping points in some of the parts of the planet that so far have helped us mitigate climate warming, that we risk that they start accelerating warming instead. Like parts of the the Brazilian part of the Amazon forest, for example, is now a net emitter of greenhouse gases, whereas before it was a net sink. And also, you know, the capacity of the ocean to absorb our heat and, well, the warming and also the greenhouse gases is, you know, approaching limit. But it is still functioning. It's still doing this massive service for us. And if we continue doing that for, for, you know, years to come, and if we were to stop emitting greenhouse gases, it would actually start helping us decrease the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere eventually. So, but it's so important that we, you know, stop pushing it uh, because eventually it won't be able to cope anymore. I know that over the past, you told me four or five years or something, you've trained hundreds of CEOs and chairpersons and so on in uh, this resilience thinking. And we're talking about big companies, big organizations, so they're really representing millions of people. And first of all, an amazing accomplishment. So congrats for for doing that. That's a huge, important work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're so happy that they wanted to come. We weren't sure if they would want to spend, you know, five days with climate scientists and resilient thinkers, but apparently we had something to offer. (laughs) (laughs) Out of everything that you teach them, what resonates most deeply within them? I would say it differs for different individuals, of course, but there's some facts that seem to really stick. And, and one is just the realization of how dominant the species will become on the planet, because many people still live with this feeling that we're, you know, such a small number on such a huge planet, you know, how could you ever affect the planet? It's so vast. But when we show figures like, um, the proportion of biomass that actually people make up versus wild animals, for example. And, and we show them that the mass of people is 10 times that of wild uh, mammals. Then that's mind-blowing to them. Uh, also the realization, you know, of the Holocene, you know, just how stable that has been and, and also how unique it is that we're now actually warming the planet at this pace. That is not something that ever happened in human history, but also... We haven't been at the warming we have now in millions of years. And so just the, the scale of the change, our dominance. But then also I think many of them are uh, surprised uh, to see also the many positive signals that we can see in terms of society responding and in terms of 
businesses taking leadership and so on. Um, so I think they're surprised maybe both in terms of the urgency of the challenge, but also the opportunity that that brings for them. Our world is built around, uh, you could say, the formula of growth rather than what is meaningful growth. So what should we actually, you know, ask ourselves if we are, let's say, a company uh, who wants to, you know, succeed and grow and so on? But what questions do we need to ask ourselves regarding the all kinds of impacts that we actually produce? Well, I think it is really important to take that question seriously, uh, which is around why do we exist as a company? What is it that we contribute? What need are we serving? And then to think about how can we serve that need in a way that doesn't erode the opportunities for future generations or for life and, and people you know, on other parts of, of the planet. So it's really about you know, how can we meet needs within the planetary boundaries, as we call them. And then you need to start reviewing your impacts. Um, I think a big reason for why we see a transgression of planetary boundaries is that we don't account for what's called externalities, so these side effects. So we see private companies gaining a profit for their owners, but at the expense of the society has to bear the cost, basically. We don't have a price on carbon. We don't have a price on biodiversity and so on. So these just uh, services that society and planet provides for free, and then the companies reap the benefits. And that's something that needs to be addressed if we are going to direct the creativity that we see in the private sector and the innovation and all of that, but doing that towards you know, a common good, something that is not only beneficial to the company and its owner, but to broader society and the planet as a whole. Yeah. And also, I think it's interesting. I think I saw some uh, video clips with you talking at Norgren Foundation, I think, where you also talked about these impact dimensions around what we do, how it also affects habits and, and norms and, you know, democracy and uh, general kind of well-being and so on of people, of the products, services, whatever we provide. All of those, because it's easy also, as you say, to focus in on on the direct climate things, uh, that kind of impact. But But also we are producing certain ways of behavior, actually, feeding certain ways of habits that, that are not that sound or, or meaningful in, in themselves. That's very true. And I think that uh, companies need to start realizing, just as individuals need to start realizing that we are also, as you say, influencing norms, uh, even rules, habits. You know, we're um, affecting beyond, you know, our company. We're affecting the society at large in the way we're doing things. And we need to take responsibility for those impacts as well. It's really important to start addressing your own habits and your own work and your own uh, impact. But then you also need to look at, you know, what is beyond, you know, how can we bring our suppliers on board? How can we ensure that our customers are on board? And, and how are we also lobbying and what kind of regulations are we promoting broadly? So that we don't have, you know, a purpose, which is great and in line with, you know, a prosperous future people on the planet. Uh, but then our lobby organization is focused on, you know, minimizing regulations so that we can not have to pay for our externalities, for example. It needs to be all aligned, I think. Yeah, definitely. And do you have some, just on top of your mind, like companies or organizations that you truly admire that are you know, having this kind of strong backbone or integrity and are really authentic about what they do? in that sense, not even close to anything that would be, you know, greenwashing of any kind? Well, I think my one of my favorite uh, examples is actually quite a small, but still, I think, influential clothing company called Podini 
It's a Swedish company. It's a brand that uh, do outdoor clothing. Uh, but they have, from the very beginning uh, and throughout, uh, worked really progressively with you know this idea of how can we, you know, enable for people to be outdoors a lot and you know be well dressed so that they can actually you know be in, in cold and everything, but in a way that has minimal harm to the planet. So they work a lot with everything from their sourcing and developing you know new kinds of fibers and and design principles that enable use for long and so on, but also different kinds of business models where you can rent these clothes instead. And they have, you know, lifelong uh, renovation uh, services to the clothing and, and so on. But that's a small company. It was born with that idea from the beginning. It was designed in and, and they continuously work. They, they were also one of the first or maybe the first company to do an assessment of their impact in relation to the planetary boundaries, you know, way back. Uh, when when the planetary boundaries were launched in, in science. But then I think it's also interesting to think about these companies who were more born in the fossil economy, a linear economy, and they're trying to make the transition, which I think is equally important because that's where lots of the resources are, lots of the infrastructure, the competence of all the people in those organizations, you know, the services they buy, the customers they serve. You know, through them, we can, we really, you know, if they can shift, that's going to have big ripple effect. But it's in, a, in one way much harder because they have to rethink everything. And there I have some examples from the executive program also that I think are interesting to look at. They're not perfect in any way, but they're doing this shift in a quite uh, ambitious and genuine way that I admire. Can you, as, as a researcher and your team, can you actually help those companies transition better in some practical way as well or, or are you more like feeding them insights and guiding them in a way big way yeah that's a good question because it goes into also what is the role of science in in all of this and um, i think historically scientists have you know focused on writing scientific publications and then of course teaching uh, university students but that's you know where and maybe writing a little policy brief that hopefully a decision maker will pick up and act on but what we try to do at the Stock Resilience Center is to build in collaboration, co-production of knowledge, communication, you know, throughout our research and education so that we can, you know, shorten this time between a scientific insight to action. But when you do that, you also need to think a lot about scientific integrity and ensuring that we're still, you know, pursuing curiosity-driven science that's not agenda-driven or, or bought by a company or anything like that. So we work a lot you know, with that kind of research ethics and so on. But specifically to your question around to what extent we can advise and help companies, I think we do it in the executive program where we're, you know, very explicitly saying that this is a training program where we hope to be able to give you as much knowledge and insight as possible through the science, but also through your interaction with each other so that you have a well-informed compass to bring back into your company. And then, of course, you, you will probably want to buy consultant um, services and so on that you yourself choose, but it's not something we will be able to contribute because we're a, a science organization. Whereas in other cases, maybe we have a closer collaboration. We have, you know, even a, a shared research project that we can work on something together uh, with, with a company. But then it's typically externally funded by a foundation or something like that so that we can you know, do the science we want to do and we're not dependent on finding something that the company uh, likes or whatever, but we can have our critical stance while still, you know, being useful, hopefully, to the company. So we have a, a different kinds of mo models there, but we're 
foremost uh, science organizations. When we enter into partnerships, it's because there is a scientific interest also in it uh, and not just um, application uh, interest. And, and listen, there is an, something else I picked up when you spoke at the Norwegian Foundation. You said something like both the, the, the problems and the solutions are very often interconnected, which also means that there are also ways of addressing multiple problems at the same time. Oh, yes. I love that realization of the world, that it's a complex, you know, interactive system. So when we try to address the problem, you know, we can do it in a way that addresses multiple problems or in a way that creates new problems, you know, depending on our system boundaries, how we look at something. So, yeah, interesting, I think. So your kind of main how of how to go about resolving all of this is literally saying going from fossil fuels to renewable energies, going from linear to circular. And then going from like exploitation in general to a more of a regenerative approach, right? Yes, exactly. That's not. Thanks for summarizing that. That's how I typically try and put into a short message what it is that we need to do as a collective. And what can be done, you think, to speed up policies to support this transition? Yeah, so I think, you know, that policymakers, they do what the population, you know, what they can sort of sell to the population. You know, what can their voters, at least in democratic societies, you know, what can they get voters to buy into, basically? So I think policymakers both need help in explaining how the sustainability transition will be beneficial to their incomes and their jobs and their, you know, security and their health and, you know, making the link between climate action and benefit to people. That's one thing that we can help policymakers with. But then I think we can also ensure that the people are involved, that voters are. So after a few years of the executive program, I've been thinking more and more about how we can support policymakers, because of course, the private sector cannot do this on their own. They need the right playing field for this to work. And it's the politicians and the rules there. So then I've started working with unions because they're quite strong in Sweden and they organize three and a half million Swedish adults. And uh, if we can have unions on board to help people see how their jobs and incomes will be secured in the future uh, or in throughout this transition, you know, I think people will be much more uh, supportive of climate policy, for example. And we are also going to make better decisions if we have them included than if it's just driven by the, the employers. So we're trying now to equip all unions with the tools uh, that their members can then use in their workplaces to support climate action and sustainability throughout. And so that we get, you know, what they talk about as a just transition, not just transition, but a, a just transition, which I think is super important in these quite polarized times where we also see a, sort of a backlash to some of the, of the green uh, initiatives that people are starting to resist because they're concerned about, you know, how this will influence them and their families. I was thinking about projects or initiatives that you are driving through the center. Where does the initiative normally come from? Is it from external sources or, or people or is it from your, you and your team? And what is deciding, you know, what you prioritize and how? That's a really fun question because it's something we're working on continuously. You know, this balance between having, you know, a shared vision and a shared mission for the SRC, the Stockholm Resilience Center, that we're all working towards while allowing for this flexibility and creativity that, that comes both from within the center and all of the curiosity-driven scientists that we have, 
and the interaction with you know the broader society and the needs and the opportunities that appear there and that we that we want to act on so it's i think it's always this calibration we do have a shared vision we do have a shared mission we have a process for deciding which science ideas that we actually continue pursuing and which ones you know that we actually drop or say that they don't belong in the organization so we have a process for that uh, but we are also very open to both what our staff wants to do because we think they see you know a lot of things that we don't see as the center leadership and also what society sort of asks uh, from us but we never want to end up in a situation where we're just reactive to you know whatever appears we want to be you know 20 25 years ahead in our thinking because i i think that's what science should do we you should really be thinking now about the things we need to sort of have answers to 20 25 years from now so for example when the planetary boundary concept idea was born that very much came from the earth system science uh, community who, who want to start putting together you know the bigger puzzle but also in dialogue with people from the Telberg Forum uh, who saw, you know, this need to have sort of a shared diagnosis of, of the Earth system. So I think that's something that it's amazing to see how these innovative concepts can be born in these interfaces between both different disciplines, but also between academia and the broader society. What role do you see that technology actually is playing in, in advancing the whole sustainability thing? Well, I think that... Um, Technology, it can be what we make it to be in a way. I mean, we can use it to pursue sustainability, but we can also use it to erode sustainability. And I think we're not always in control of you know, how technology is developed or how it's used. I think it's just a phenomenon that we are having as a species. We are continuously innovating uh, technologies. And I think what we need to do as a society is to continuously also discuss how we sort of frame innovation so that it contributes to a, a good future rather than just profit for a single company or something like that. So do we talk about it as a double-edged sword uh, technology? It can go both ways. And we have a growing field for us uh, on AI and machine learning and, and how that whole process can be used, you know, for a prosperous planet or for, you know, a devastated planet, depending on how we frame it and what we sort of build into this algorithm, what data do we train it on and, and so on. It's fascinating and I think it needs to have much more dialogue between the technology nerds and the sustainability people so that we can really bring this together. So that it's serving exactly and, and uh, serving the right things. And listen, just going back to you, what would you say is your passion, you know, that thing that you're also willing to suffer for if needed and that is so important to you? That's a very deep question and quite difficult to put into words. But I do love life as a phenomenon. You know, I love that, you know, there is life on this planet. And I'm fascinated by all the diversity that life, there's so many life forms. And so I'm very passionate about allowing for lots of life. And in particular, I love human life. So I, I love people. I love when I can connect with kind and intelligent people and to work on, on something together. And um, I can work endlessly if I see that what I do will contribute to something meaningful in terms of maintaining life and in particular human life on the planet. Then if I have an idea of something that I think can you know, have that effect, I can work day and night uh, to, to see it happen. And on the other hand, if I don't think what I do will contribute to that, there's no way I can 
sort of force myself to do it. So I'm very much driven by that. Impossible for someone else to tell me what to do. <laughs> so I, that's why I'm a scientist, I think, and staying in academia, where I get to pursue the things that I really believe in uh, myself, together with others who you know, have a similar passion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank God they have a similar passion. So you can, in that sense, you're also leading the team now. So it's good that you're in sync from the beginning. Yeah, no, that's true. And I also, you know, I, I should add, given that, you know, that I also really love to create the conditions for others to pursue their passion, you know, make it possible for people to really pursue something that they believe on believe in uh, together with others. Uh, humans have such um, drive and we have the capacity to feel solidarity for each other, but also for other species. So we have the capacity to think long term, to collaborate. There are so many things that, that we have as humans that I think can be fantastic if we provide you know, space for that to really blossom. And you know, when you say that, uh, what comes to mind is also that the kind of narrative that has been very dominant, maybe I guess through mainstream media mainly, is this kind of sense of shame that we all feel around climate. Like we are to blame, we are doing something bad to nature and our planet and let's shape up, let's, you know, change, let's whatever. It's like we are to blame. And this kind of sense of shame is a very negative feeling and energy to have within you. And it's kind of being fed all the time. And then when you, as exactly these things that you were saying, that is so fascinating that we all have the capacity to do so much more and really think long-term and be committed and have some, let's call it a moral kind of fabric within us that is also guiding our actions. But that naturally doesn't come out if you feed me all the time these shameful feelings. So in a way, I would wish that uh, media would also pick up on, on positive, good stuff and report on that so people get more hope for a good reason. Yeah, I think that is an interesting discussion. I mean, shame is about you just as a being, being bad, which is not a good thing to have people feel shame. But guilt, you know, when feeling that actually I've, I've been doing something wrong and I need to address that. That is a very important feeling because it's telling us, you know, we're not living in line with values. And I think when people feel guilt, it is typically because they realize that I should probably not take this long flight for just, you know, two days where I could actually have a video meeting instead, for example. So I feel guilt. And instead of acting on that guilt and addressing the problem, you're sort of externalizing and saying, you know, you shouldn't make me feel guilty for this. But I totally agree with you that we need to also show, you know, help people find their path to contributing in a meaningful way and not feel just apathy from the complexity of the challenge and in combination with sort of powerlessness. Uh, so hope is, is very important and hope comes from being engaged in action, preferably together with others and seeing that, you know, I'm part of a movement. We're all doing our bits and pieces and we're sort of helping each other steer this ship in a better direction. Uh, that's what gives hope rather than a passive hope that could come from, oh, I'm sure that the politicians will and look at all of the things that are happening in this and so maybe I can just take that flight after all you know it's better if people see hope from the meaningful work they're doing we can all do something however small we can all do something absolutely and we learn along the way no one has you know the final recipe like if you do this you're all sustainable but we can learn this learn to live through this together yeah exactly and also feel that we are kind of tapping into some kind of collective intelligence in all of this which is equally guided by the head as by the heart you know but what would you say is um the future you would like to see maybe in 10 years time how does it look in that future what's happening there 
It's a beautiful question, and I think it would be good for us all to, to think about that every now and then. So I'm glad you, you asked it. And I think 10 years from now, what I wish, wish we have done is that we have passed emission. So we have really cut emissions in half. And the way we've done that is that we have scaled up existing technologies in energy, in food production, in transport industry buildings. We've scaled up, scaled them up. And in the meantime, we have uh, continued innovating so that we have, you know, ideas for how to do the second halving. We've done it in a way that is just and people, you know, feel included and they see that there is a direction. I think that um, it's going to be challenging because we have already committed to some warming and we already see now, you know, the effects in terms of droughts and floods and, you know, all sorts of disruptions. But I also am convinced that when people believe in the direction and they believe that others are doing their bit, they're willing to have some tough years and invest in a more positive future for themselves and their children. So I think if there is leadership in policy, in civil society, in business that people can believe in, they're happy to do these things. And then when we're on track, we will have a, a cleaner, healthier uh, society. I mean, no one loves to burn fossil fuels. It's not something that they're giving you a lot of good side effects. It, it, you, you're doing it because you want to be able to move and and eat and uh, have clothes and, and warm your house and so on. But there are other ways of achieving all of those goals than burning fossil fuels. So I think many people won't notice a lot of bad things from this transition. They will rather discover some positive side effects of it. And what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now? Again, it really depends on your sector, of course, and also how far you've come in the sustainability journey. But just on a general level, many have been very focused on carbon emissions, which is important. And now biodiversity is sort of sailing up as a, as a key issue to start addressing because we can't even, you know, stabilize the climate without also somehow maintaining the carbon sinks we have in nature. So the oceans, but also the vegetation on land. And we need to stop exploiting nature. And so we need to find, you know, and, and also start managing the nature that is under management in a much, much better way. And all companies have some connection to biodiversity, both in terms of dependency, but also on impact. So start mapping those and seeing how you can be a better participant in the broader ecosystem will be important. And uh, I think that's around the next step. And I think also in addition to that, I think another one is this around the just transition around, you know, ensuring workers' rights, ensuring the, the social capital, in societies and so on, and showing, you know, how understanding also your social dependencies and impacts and how what you're doing can be valuable to both the ecosystems and societies, but basically is going to be sort of the next step for many companies. And is there any particular kind of advice to leaders who are typically listening to this podcast that you would like to give? Well, leaders should start listening even more to, of course, their sustainability team that they hopefully have in their company, but also to you know, what's happening outside the company. So listen to the, the young students who say that they refuse to work for unsustainable companies and they want to see genuine uh, commitment and ambition and, and action. Uh, listen to the needs of the communities uh, in which you're operating and uh, be aware of, of what's, what's going on 
out there. And then uh, I think, you know, set a, a really ambitious and uh, attractive vision and mission for your company that you can sort of rally around. Then I think many companies also, uh, you know, they might have done their thing within the company, which is good, but then you should think about the next step, which is the, your influence through your suppliers and your customers but also the broader networks that you're part of. So how can you sort of bring more people on board and how can you even start thinking about shifting your whole industry that you're part of and not just being a leader you know, within your company, but a leader for the industry as a whole towards um, sustainability. I think that's something that is exciting for many people to think about also. Yeah, and it's so fascinating because when people exit their own kind of organization and think bigger about, as you say, sectors or in general, literally to create a, collective community with all their stakeholders, it's more fun, it's more meaningful, and they normally get to results they would never have dreamt of. Very much so. And we can see that in the executive program also, how it's completely new ideas are born because there are leaders from completely different industries who've never talked together about these issues before. And so they realize when they come into the same group and start from the same sort of science uh, understanding that actually there are things we could do here together that will be beneficial to all of us. And so just, you know, let's go out and do it. And within a week, they're, they're off the ground. So I think it's often underestimated, you know, the value of meeting across uh, industries and, and sectors also. I sometimes do that in some uh, projects where I work in, in terms of, you know, transforming companies into, you could say, better instruments for the good agenda. And then on purpose, I bring in people who, in, in let's say, close workshops with them, people has nothing to do with their sector at all. They don't even have that kind of profession that that person is representing in the room. And that person gives them a completely fresh kind of view of what they're doing, why, and how he or she is interpreting this and what it means to them and so on. And it always brings out so many great ideas that it's just incredible. Just that kind of complete diversity coming from a totally different angle, I think is, is just amazing. And then you, of course, you need to, I, like, I pick them so that I know that they're general kind of core values of that individual is still aligned with this group because otherwise you end up in some you know very kind of black and white kind of discussions but if that is aligned then this very diverse perspective brings a lot of value i think that's brilliant one uh, you know sort of long-term plan i have for the executive work is to also have a program where you bring together sort of the large uh, older companies and you know the startups and see what happens there if you bring those two worlds together uh, where I think they can really, you know, benefit a lot from from each other's insights and, and complementary capacities. Because we know also from transformation research that transformation happens, you know, always as a combination of existing structures, you know, shifting or opening up and being more receptive. And then the new niche innovations that are sort of gaining ground. And it's when, when you have both sort of the down and bottom up, if you will. Uh, moving at the same time, that's when you can have a, a really rapid and transformative shift. So we need to have them in the room, I think, uh, both parts of the system. I'm also curious, going back to you again as a person, about your transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most. We all have them, but maybe you can mention one or two if you like. Yeah, for me, you know, there have been several, of course, but there's there's one that will always stand out, I think, for me, and that was um, uh, back in 2012 in August when I was in France with my three little kids, um, two, five, and seven years old, and we were going to receive uh, 
and my husband uh, at the finishing line of this cycling race that he had taken as part of his celebration of his 40th birthday. And then he never came to the finish line because he had uh, fallen off the pier in the race. So instead, I got this this call from the doctor in the race that, that this had happened. So, you know, in that very moment, my whole life shifted, you know, my expected future disappeared. And I was um, in a completely new situation and had to really, you know, reorient in a way and see myself uh, step by step into the a very unknown future. But what happened then was that uh, I got a very strong inner voice. I just knew somehow exactly what I needed to do and there was no way I could do anything else. So I just had a very strong sense of direction somehow. And my priority was, you know, to to create the best life possible for my children, uh, to uh, pursue my career that I had already started in sustainability, but to also bring in what Pontus had worked on as an editor-in-chief for a business magazine to, to bring sustainability to the forefront for, for business. I wanted to carry that on and, and also to just carry, you know, the, the love and the lessons I had gotten from him, everything I had gotten from Pontus, I wanted to just carry into the future with me. So in a way, it didn't change my direction at all, but it changed the context for, for my life. And it also made it, you know, even stronger somehow. And I was also so fortunate to have, you know, uh, how many big network of friends who just stepped in, amazing colleagues who just stepped in, at the Stockholm Resilience Center. So I, w- I was really, you know, resting in this network of support that helped us uh, through that, that period and helped, you know, helped me feel my way forward. So from that, we created this foundation in this memory that had annual events for CEOs and so on uh, on sustainability and gender equality and diversity. And out of that, this executive program eventually was born to increase the impact of, of the science. So, yeah. Definitely a, a really important moment in my life. Amazing! I, I followed his work uh, for for years before this happened, so I was I was aware of this, but I I never connected you with him just because you had that last name. So I realized that just recently, and it's big things sometimes happening in life that is really um, difficult to absorb. But you seem to have somehow magically landed, and as you say, cherished what he was in this life is the number one gift for everybody involved. And also this realization that, you know, sometimes, especially in the Northern Europe, you I get this always notion of being a strong person means that you can do anything and everything alone almost, right? And that's like the biggest fake message <laughs> you can give to yourself or anyone, right? So this power of, of being togetherness, supporting each other as much as we all can. And just like this power of kindness, which I believe in is the most, the biggest kind of intelligence that we have actually, because it's always guiding us in the right direction. So I I love to think about uh, kindness as the best power, the strong power. Yeah, beautifully said. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, Listen, so my last question to you is this one, then it's not a small one, but still, uh, what do you think the world needs most right now? Well, I think you just said it last night. I think uh, kindness very much. But I also think we get so absorbed these days and fragmented, you know, with the so many messages that we get and the so many channels of communication that we keep running at the same time and so on. And I think we somehow need space to gather 
our thinking and try to think clearly and to feel, uh, you know, clearly also. To not be all over the place doing everything at once, but try to really zoom in and focus because we don't have time to lose and we need to act, you know, where it actually matters as individuals and as uh, collectives. So maybe kindness and clarity of thought. Super. Thank you so much, Lisen. Thanks for being on the show and thanks for sharing everything, both from your personal life and from your work life. Thanks, Vesna. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening to the show. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. To make it easier for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca and you have been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.